Welcome back. My guest this week is Craig Kimmins. Craig is a recovery advocate at Triune Mercy Center. And in our conversation, we talked through his personal journey that led him to the position he is at today. For a very long time, Craig struggled with alcohol and drugs and addiction, even though he was living a pretty successful career in the restaurant industry. Um, his addiction eventually led him to being hospitalized where he be- got into a coma. And after recovering um, from these health issues, he was placed into the Miracle Hill Overcomers Treatment Program, and he credits them in a lot of ways for saving his life. And now he is on the mission, which he says is to give hope to the hopeless. And he spends countless hours and days working with the jail system and individuals in jail that struggle with addiction and mental health to get them the treatment and resources they need and help rehabilitate them back into the world. Craig's an incredible guy, and I truly enjoyed the conversation. If you need any of these resources, I do have the link to Triune Mercy Center in our bio. And as we all are in the middle of holiday season, um, there's more holiday parties and holiday events going on, and there's more drinking. And next time you go out or you're about to socialize, I challenge you to think about drinking smarter. And I mean drink Rebel Rabbit. Rebel Rabbit is a seltzer company based out of the upstate of South Carolina, and they're on a mission to drink smarter, to socialize smarter. And their seltzers are alcohol-free. They're THC infused with Delta 8 and Delta 9. So you'll still get a little bit of an edge off by drinking their seltzer, but their harm reduction aspects are incredible. You're going to wake up fresh. You're not going to be hungover, and you're going to be more productive in the days following. You can find their seltzers on their website, drinkrebelrabbit.com. Make sure to use promo code LIFE20, and you'll get 20% off your order. You can also find their retailers. They're packing up the retailers all over the country, um, so you can search their retail options as well. But make sure to visit drinkrebelrabbit.com. Use promo code LIFE20, and you'll get 20% off your orders. Where Christmas is right around the corner, and you know what? a great gift for somebody could be a mattress and the team at engineered sleep is incredible their customer service their products are second to none and if you go to their website engineeredsleep.com use promo code live 15 you'll get 15 percent off your order but as we all know sleep is incredibly important um, to perform at your highest level on a daily basis so reach out to the team at engineered sleep Use promo code LIVE15 and you'll get 15% off your order. Their website is, again, engineeredsleep.com. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Craig Kimmins. Craig, thank you so much for joining me. I know you had a busy morning, but first off, man, what's up? How you doing? Doing very well. Thank you. And our good friend Susan, who is with the Greenville Homeless Alliance, hooked us up. And she mentioned to me that you'd be great to come on and also share your story. So let's start by saying, what do you do now? You work for Triumph um, Mercy Center, is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a recovery advocate. Um, I also help on the weekends and operations at Triumph Mercy Center. Uh, we're a non-denominational church here in Greenville um, that ministers alongside those in need. Got it. And <clears throat> talk me through what you do on like a daily basis or a weekly basis. 
I've, one of the things is people that walk in and uh, tell us they have a desire for change. They're battling addiction. We have a, a large uh, ministry that works with people experiencing homelessness, folks that are marginalized. Um, and some of our folks are, you know, are in a constant battle with addiction. Yep. And sometimes they won't help. And so I try to be there for that. We also have a jail ministry that's been um, in action for about 16 years. David Gay started that. Um, he works with the ladies. I work with the men. Um, they write us letters from the detention centers. We work mainly in Greenville County, and now we are in Pickens County, um, which is great because I live out there, and it's nice to be able to help folks um, out in my home county. They write us letters asking for help, and then we work through their attorneys, sometimes the solicitors, sometimes even the judge, probation, and we try to route them instead of going into SCDC, into prison, the prison system, we try to create a pathway to recovery through inpatient long-term treatment. Gotcha. And for you, was it, you might not in ministries or trying where you, when you were struggling, you went to, to help save you? Well, I was living in South Florida. Okay. Uh, my mom, who's since passed, um, went to Clemson Presbyterian and the pastor there knew of my struggles and introduced her to a lady whose son worked for Miracle Hill, who's a recovering addict as well. And um, so her and my sister, I was in the hospital in, in Fort Lauderdale or in Hollywood at the time. And um, they got information on the Miracle Hill Overcomers program. And so I ended up doing a phone interview from my hospital bed with them. They offered me a bed. And mm -hmm. when I was discharged, the next day I got on a plane in Fort Lauderdale and came to Greenville. And I've never left. Wow. <laughs> so uh, I did work with United Ministries while I was in Overcomers. Okay. They have had a big career um, training program um, that we were involved with. So I've, um, I've been involved with them over the years. And now today, obviously we work alongside each other. Yeah. Great. And you, uh, you know, you touched on it and I think, um, is it important? It is important for us to kind of go through your story and you did find yourself eventually in a hospital, I think in a coma and a lot from drugs and alcohol. What was life like for you as a kid growing up? Oh, I had an amazing childhood. Um, Loving parents, uh, Christian home, involved in the church. My dad was deacon, Sunday school teacher. Mom was sister, five years older, um, cheerleader, homecoming queen. Um, I ended up playing basketball, and uh, which took me to college. You're a big guy. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> well, I wasn't as big when I got to Division One. I. I was kind of a small guy by then. But um, I got hurt, and I ended up dropping out of college. And came back to Atlanta or to Lithonia, Georgia, where I'm from, and moved to Atlanta. Ended up working in the computer business. And this is before the internet was a thing, you know, when it was just a university um, accessed uh, computer network. And uh, I ended up working with these couple of Georgia Tech dropouts <laughs> who realized the potential of, the, of what the internet was going to be. And so we, I kind of worked with these guys and we worked with businesses and linked them up and we're trying to figure out ways to get people on the internet before it was commercially available. Um, so I, You're ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't. They were. Um, but basically, I sold computer systems, network services for a few years. And then um, I ended up just quitting one day, up and quitting. And um, 
went to work as a bartender. I just said, you know what? I'm going to do something different. I don't want to be. I was young. I was in my um, early 20s, and I was supervising older people, and there was a lot of resentment there, and I just didn't like it. It wasn't fun. Yeah. So um, I had some friends that say, hey, why don't you come work for with us at this restaurant we're running, this sports bar? And so I did, and I ended up working there for a while, and um, that was my first taste of the restaurant business and um, everything that goes along with it. So um, that was the next 20 plus years of my life. Was that, were you drinking then in your life? Yeah. Socially. Socially. Yeah. Talk me through the progression of your drinking getting worse and then eventually maybe picking up pills or other drugs. Um, it was a restaurant business. We drank a lot. We didn't really drink while working too much. It was never comfortable for me to do that. Um, but there was a lot of late nights, which led to um, cocaine, which then led to smoking uh, weed to come down so we yep. could go to bed so we can get up the next morning and do it all over again. Um, but I can't tell you the exact moment where alcohol became a necessity or where cocaine and crack became a necessity, but I can tell you that when it did, I... It was the most important thing in my life. Mm -hmm. It was more important than being a dad, more important than my career, which at that time was going really, really well. Um, but I just basically um, gave it all up because all I wanted was to get high and drink. I mean, yeah. that's really, at, at, at the end of the day, that's, that's what it grew into. Um, and then I'd get better. And then... I'd start again, you know, and it was, a, it was a cycle until I just, I almost overdid it to a point of almost dying. And that's where it all, that was my last hurrah. When you say you would get better, would you, would you self <clears throat> recognize, you know, obviously you're going down a bad path and would you do it by yourself to go sober for a while or try and get clean for a while? And then... Talk me through that, like the ups and downs of you thinking you're getting better and then you get back into it. It was a little bit of, of self. It was a little bit of people that were concerned around me mm -hmm. um, that tried to help. I went to a detox program in Fort Lauderdale, um, came out. I stayed clean for maybe two weeks. And I was like, oh, I got this. You know, because as an addict we can always convince ourselves it's going to be different this time around mm -hmm. that we know what we did wrong last time. We're not going to do that this time. <laughs> and that's, you know, we rationalize and convince ourselves that we can handle it. When in truth, we never could handle it. Uh -huh. And the only person we're really fooling is ourselves because everybody around us starts to see the, the decaying and the, just the change in um, behaviors and in your personality um, so you're just fooling yourself. And then mine just became to the point where I almost died. Yeah. You know, and I was desperate. So you were in Florida. I was in Florida. Um, was doing cocaine and drinking by myself, collapsed in my home. And my friend came and found me. And he called an ambulance. And then he called my landlord who called an ambulance. And... Um, I ended up spending 43 days in the hospital. 
I had to learn how to walk again. Mm-hmm. I was told I had a stroke. I was told I'd had a heart attack, but they weren't sure when. Um, but I was in a coma for nine days or 11 days on a ventilator for nine. I think something like that. And I actually had to learn how to walk. When was this? What year? Uh, 2015. So um, when I actually got to Greenville, <laughs> I could barely walk. And what's funny is right before my last level of rehab, I broke my leg on table rock. Dang. And so I left on crutches. <laughs> so so I, I had to have surgery. Um, I snapped my leg. Did you go from the hospital into like a inpatient treatment? Yes, I I came to Overcomers. Okay. Within two days of being discharged. And how did you find Overcomers again? Through my mom. She had found it through a, a friend at her church. Her son worked for Miracle Hill Ministries. And so she started digging. And my sister was also in Nashville where she lives. She started digging. And, um, you know, I was desperate. I... I really didn't want to go still. Yeah. Even to sure. how bad things Had were. Had you tried to be at the rehab before in the past? I didn't. I did a uh, like an intensive outpatient. Um, uh, Anderson Oconee IOP, I think it was called. Okay. <laughs> um, something I had, I, I did in t- 2012. Okay. Last time I had got clean um, and sober. So, yeah, I tried it before. But outpatient, I wanted the easy way out. Mm-hmm. I went and visited a rehab in Anderson, and it terrified me. Um, and I was like, no way I'm going to this place. <laughs> and so as usual, I manipulated my way into an easier mm-hmm. solution, which really wasn't a solution. But it appeared to the people that I had to make happy that I was doing the right thing. Yeah. I've tried um, outpatient, too. didn't work. Well, <laughs> no. I, I, you know, working in this business now... Even I've, I've seen very limited success with these 28 day programs like mm-hmm. Morse Village down in Columbia. I appreciate what they do on the mental health side of things, but I just don't think 28 days is enough. It wasn't for me. I wanted to leave in 28 days. Yeah. You know, it took me into the second, third month before um, my mind was clear and I truly wanted to change. How long were you with the overcomers? It's a seven-month, 28-week program. So I was with them for seven months, and then I applied for an internship with Miracle Hill. Mm-hmm. Ended up working at the Greenville Rescue Mission for six months. Then I applied for a job with Miracle Hill and worked as a case manager and um, resident support at the Spartanburg Rescue Mission. And while I was doing that, I pl- I've heard about trying hire, and I just thought it was such a unique place, such a diverse uh, church and group that I applied and ended up getting a part-time job there. So I'd work mornings in Greenville <laughs> till about well, 12 or one. And then I'd rush to Spartanburg and work till 11 at night um, at the mission. I actually lived in an apartment on the property. So I had a caseload and I tried to make sure everything building didn't burn down and <laughs> just tried to help, you know, everything I could. Um, and I did that for I guess, almost a year and it was killing me just that drive, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And, um, Try and eventually offered me full time to come on. And um, regrettably, I had to make a choice. And my heart told me, and th- just praying that this was going to open up more opportunities for what I thought I wanted to do. I mm-hmm. wasn't sure, but I wanted to try it, you know. And um, so I ended up joining full time. And then uh, David Gay, who started our. Um, 
program at the jail told me he believed that I was the one to carry on the the, the mission, mm-hmm. you know, and um, which somebody had told me a, a couple years before that that's what I was going to be doing, and I told them they were crazy. I'm like, the last thing, <laughs> I'd been in jail, and I didn't want to go back, not even to visit, but sure enough, now that's what I do is I hang out in detention centers. I read that you could be in a detention center like five days of the week. I could be. I have been in the past. We're closed on Fridays. Okay. I usually work from home in the mornings. It's just writing letters. Everybody that writes me, I write them back. If they invest the time to communicate with me, whether I can help them or not, yeah, you know, I write them back. I, we, we probably send $25,000 in Bibles, recovery Bibles and Bibles into the jails and prisons every year. Dang. So we write them, send them a Bible, a lot of ask for recovery Bibles. We send those, celebrate recovery Bibles. But everyone that writes us, we, we write back. You know, that's just out of respect. I mean, they did something wrong. They're paying the price, but um, I'm not going to judge them. And since they, they invested that time, I'm going to invest the time back, whether I can help them or not. Yeah. You know. And you do that on a national level where people write in? No. Well, we get some letters throughout South Carolina, maybe um, neighboring states, mm-hmm. but mostly it's Greenville County Detention okay. Center. And so you have $20,000 worth of Bibles, just like mail out, around drop off. I drop off uh, paper grocery bags full of manila envelopes with a return letter, a response letter, an information form, and a Bible. Wow. And we drop them off, and then the chaplains um, hand them out. To How the- do the people um, in the jails figure out how to reach out to you guys well it's just i always joke that my name's on the bathroom wall but i mean it's <laughs> it's kind of you know the the, the co's that work there uh-huh. and other inmates we have a lot of repeat business from mm-hmm. those folks and a lot of people know who we are and it, or it may be their attorney may contact us and if an attorney requests it then i usually just go visit and don't make them write me Anything else they have to write us to initiate the process. Um, but if an attorney says, hey, will you please go talk to my, my guy? I think that he's got a real chance to go to rehab and he says he wants it. Mm-hmm. And so I'll go and kind of vet him and talk to him. And I tell him kind of a condensed version of my story just to kind of give him hope. Yep. That this doesn't have to be the way your life's going to be for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, no matter how bad things seem, there's a solution you just got to be willing to work for it. What is a common theme or what is what are common messages you get when letters come to you guys? Uh, please help me. Um, I've never had a chance to go to rehab before. Um, my kids need me. Mm-hmm. My mama needs me. My wife needs me at home working to pay the bills. You know... And then a lot go, hey, I, I'm an addict, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't want to live this way anymore, but I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Can you help? Those are ones I'm like, yes. Yeah. I, you know, I offer help to everybody, but um, some people just looking to get out of jail. Yeah. It's like I got to get out of jail free you know, card stuck on my forehead. To go to rehab. To go to rehab, but it's yeah. just an excuse to get out. Yeah. It's not to change their life. But then there's those ones that you can just get, you can read between the lines and say, this this guy wants it. Yeah. He's desperate. And that's where we have to get a lot of times. 
most of the time is we have to be desperate to make change. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to be on your deathbed you pretty know? much. And I mean, sitting in jail, looking at doing 10 years in prison, that's some incentive yeah. to, to get routed to rehab. Right. You know, do you see, I don't know if there is a percentage, um, but the amount of people that are struggling, struggling with addiction, um, that are in jail, Mm. I, I don't, I can't put a number on it. I mean, um, well, we got 14, 1500 inmates in Greenville County detention center. Who knows how many of their own drug charges, possession, yeah. trafficking, um, distribution, even though sometimes it's their personal stash. Yeah. You know, if it's over a certain weight, the charges get trumped up. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I couldn't give you a percentage, you know, I can't even get a, give a accurate percentage on, our success rate of the men and women that we actually get into programs instead of them going to prison. Got it. Um, the ones that complete graduate and, and really truly, um, restart their lives. What do you believe is a misconception about inmates or people in prison? Uh, That they're there because they deserve it and that, they don't deserve an opportunity to change. You know, they don't deserve a check, a second chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe everyone deserves a second chance. Um, I think a lot of conception about folks that are in jail because the drugs are like, well, they knew better. Yeah. You know, they don't understand addiction. Addiction will make you do stupid stuff mm-hmm. to get what you need to get where you're trying to go. Um, you're not thinking with a sound mind. You're thinking with an addict's mind and you're Mm -hmm. conniving and you're manipulating and all you're trying to do is get that next high. Yep. What is the process for when somebody gets in touch with you and you, you know, read between the lines or you've met with them and you're like, all right, now I can hopefully help this guy out, help this girl out. Well, we, we generally write back and we send an information form. It's just, you know, general date of birth and name and you got charges anywhere else that we don't know about who's your attorney are you on probation prior to getting arrested um and then what i do is in i will call the public defender's office and say hey has this has this man been assigned a public defender and they'll go yeah it's you know fred smith and so i have most of their email addresses and so i'll reach out and say hey your your client contacted me and really wants help going to rehab. Yeah. And I'd love to help them if you can make it happen. Obviously the attorney has to make it happen. So I do that. It's sometimes get a response, sometimes not, but then I'll get to the form back and then I'll kind of pay attention. And then probation and the jail are really good at when somebody gets sentenced to inpatient rehab, they're not just left sitting there. They make a concerted effort to con- they contact us and they contact the social workers at the public defender's office um, to see if we're already working with them or communicating with them. Got it. And if we have a plan for them, um, we meet once a month, um, all of us together at the jail with probation to, and we go over a list of everybody that's sitting there waiting to go to rehab. Why are they still sitting here? Do mm-hmm. they have pending other charges? Are you trying to get them in, let's say overcomers and they're full? Are they waiting on a bed? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we do a really good job of, and the, the jail does is they don't want people just sitting there. You know, they call it doing dead time when yeah. you've already been sentenced and you're just sitting in jail waiting to go somewhere. Um, 
So do they get sentenced or how do you know what's they like just sent what, to treatment? Well, here here what happens is is you know the public defender probably is negotiating with the solicitor with the prosecutor and the prosecutor's going all right listen if they go to long-term rehab that'll satisfy the charges but if they don't they got to do seven years in prison and they'll present to the judge you know or the judge will mandate say listen if you go complete an inpatient long-term program then we will wipe away the active time dang so that's the incentive you know even though unfortunately it's not enough incentive um some folks still just can't do it yeah they don't want to do it you know and and that's that's the sad part is when somebody's looking at sitting in prison for seven or ten years and all they got to do is go into a program that's going to do nothing but love them and help them and help rebuild and provide help with employment and stuff like that it's like why how could you turn that down Mm -hmm. but being an addict I, i understand yeah definitely you know what about uh, treatment centers or rehabilitation centers like overcomers that y'all work with to send these individuals to? How do you form those relationships, partnerships? Are there special ones for inmates? Well, my, my coworker um, is responsible for, for this. You know, he created, David created this years ago and he started those relationships. Obviously, I carried relationships from overcomers because I'm a graduate. And I worked for Miracle Hill. So I'm well connected with those folks. And I know I know what the program's about, you know. And I, that's why I try to figure out if somebody's going to be a good fit. Because not everybody's a good fit for uh, any one program. Um, but there's a group of programs for ladies um, that David worked with. Although he has a lot limited, more limited resources than I do for mm-hmm. men. Um, I lost 35 beds last year when the Salvation Army shut down their inpatient program. And that really was bad. That hurt the community, um, losing that, those beds. And the guy that ran that program was so passionate, you know, about helping folks. And Why'd they lose it? I, they just made a decision, you know, that, that they weren't, didn't have the staffing to, to keep it going. Wow. So that, that was bad. I also worked with Home with a Heart Out in Liberty, um, do a little bit with um, Evans Training Center up in Inman. They're actually building and expanding to 25 beds. So we're hoping, I'm hoping that I can put some men up there. They've got a really intensive 10-month program. Um, and then Overcomers, we talked about um, Haven of Rest has a men and women's program. So we work with them. Uh, David also works with uh, Renewal, which is a Miracle Hill female recovery mm-hmm. program. I've heard of um, and there's other ones in the city, but you know, my, my, I'm limited because they have to be, when they get sentenced to inpatient, they have to, it has to be a certified program through yeah. probation. So it kind of limits where we can put these folks. So sometimes we'll have to get where the judge specifically orders, you got to go to this program because then it doesn't matter if they're certified or yeah. not. Cause the judge could write on your sentence. You got to spend six months sitting in the parking lot at Waffle House. If that's what the judge writes, that's what you have to do. Yeah, that supersedes what's approved, what's not approved by probation. But if it's just inpatient, we got to go to one of those listed programs. Got it. Do you have a success story or two that you like to reference or tell? Uh, well, I, I mean, I've had, I've got some friends that I was in pro, the program that I went through that 
a couple of them have started transitional housing um, and been successful. I know people that have gone through recovery that have established entire programs. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I've had some folks do well, end up, you know, going off, getting married, having a career. But I want to do a better job of tracking my guys. Yeah. Because I, I usually know when they leave or ask to leave, but <laughs> I don't always know the outcome. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the story that I, I yearn to learn. And it's hard to track because it's not these programs' responsibility to report to me. Yeah, true. They got other, their hands are full. Yeah. But I'm trying to devise a way that I can better track these guys and ladies so we can celebrate the success. Yeah. Because I don't think we do that enough. We know mm-hmm. about the folks dying. I've lost a lot of friends. Um, and we see the sad stuff. But I want to celebrate the victories. I want to celebrate the, the milestones. Mm-hmm. We've created a, a program at Triune called Bob's Friends. And its sole purpose is to celebrate recovery. Um, it was a family wanted us to start a program. Their son had uh, committed suicide. He had every resource available to him in the world and it still wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, Rachel, one of our social workers created a, um, a fellowship and she invited me to be a part of it because of my past. And it's people that complete life changing, um, treatment or mental health programs or combination are eligible to apply through a referral and we will walk alongside them. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll meet with us. We'll help them get into, let's say Greenville tech yeah, or help them get into an apartment or maybe help them with a fine that's keeping them from getting their driver's license. Um, we're just a fellowship designed that let's celebrate what you've accomplished. We're here. You can call us, talk to us. We do monthly get togethers, um, whether it's going bowling or a cooking class we're doing, uh, here in December. Um, that's something new that we just started um, at Triune. And that's just what I want to do is I want to focus on success stories, you know, because everything we deal with is is, is so negative. Folks mm-hmm. experience homelessness, losing everything, yeah. losing their career, losing their marriage, losing their kids, um, struggling to eat. You know, we see the bad stuff, and, and I think we need to also – give some attention to the success stories. Yeah. The people that have have stood up and said, I'm not going to live like this anymore. And what do I need to do to, to change that? And then they go out and do it. Yeah. You know, that's, I, I want to, I want to celebrate those more. And you think about <clears throat> that's almost sadly, that is like kind of how like our news or how our like social media, a lot of times like operates. We see a lot of the negativity when there's a lot of success going on too. The team and the people at Engineered Sleep are offering you 15% off if you use promo code LIVE15 to get a new mattress. And I cannot tell you enough how much trust I have in the team at Engineered Sleep and the product they will provide to you if you have any questions about your current mattress. If you're getting bad sleep and you think it might be your mattress, it's time to upgrade your mattress. And the team at Engineered Sleep is here to do that for you. Use promo code LIVE15. You'll get 10% off your order. But most importantly, you're going to be working with an amazing company. You're going to have an amazing product. And you're going to start 
sleeping better at night, and you'll start performing better on a daily basis. So go to engineeredsleep.com, use promo code LIVE15, get 15% off your order, and start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis. Is part of your program or the people you work with or you know the programs y'all do work with help rehabilitate individuals back into society with like jobs and education and and other things like you kind of just mentioned with Greenville Tech? Oh, there's uh, there's programs that assist that have connections with, let's say, SCDOT mm-hmm. or um, different companies for their graduates, and they interview for these jobs, and they have these jobs secured right before they complete the program, and then they move in. Ideally, they move into transitional housing for six months, just to kind of uh, get reassociated and save some money. Because transitional housing is, is subsidized, so they can, they're not going to spend their whole paycheck on rent, right? And they're not going to have a cable bill. They're not going to have a, a Duke power bill or mm-hmm. anything like that. Because what I noticed is when you go into a long-term inpatient, is the world doesn't stop. Oh, yeah. It stops for you. You're in a cocoon. You're in a protected, safe place, right? And everybody's loving on you. And everybody's encouraging you. And you're facing what turns you into an addict you're facing those things and you're overcoming them but then you graduate and it's like oh boy you know the world never stopped yeah all those stressors what are you and- gonna do now you know you you uh alienate your family they don't trust you you're stealing from them or whatever you know um your kids hadn't seen you mm-hmm. you're absentee parent then you're gone in rehab maybe you're lucky enough to call them on the phone or write them letters, you know, but it's adjustment, man, from going to that, from that protective cocoon back into real life. Yeah. You know, and that's at the point that you start having to make those decisions that you weren't very good at before you went into rehab. You really got to face those decisions. Yeah. You got to deal with those decisions. You've got to put your tools that you gained in the programs to work Mm -hmm. because your old way of dealing with problems got you there in the first place yeah. right so you've got a you're you're reprogrammed to live differently you know be a, either a using recovery tools or b through your faith you know and and so that's put to the test immediately what do you usually tell somebody that when they come to you and say hey like i really want help i really want to change i really want it this time like, how do you kind of talk them through that? Well, it, it depends on the situation. Um, if they come in off the street into our church, into our offices, um, most of the time I tell them they have to get into an emergency shelter first because I can't chase them all over town when they don't have a phone um, to try to help them get into a rehab. And plus, some rehabs require that you pass a drug test. Yeah. Which <clears throat> seems counterintuitive, but... <laughs> it's it's the way it is and so i need them in a safe place so they can clean out their system yep so we can start the process i need to find out what legal stuff's hanging over their head because a lot of times they got pending charges and last thing we want to do is put them in a program and then this court and then a bench warrant goes out and then the spiral starts all over again um but I want to know if they really want it. Are they willing? Are they looking for the easy way out like I used to? Yeah. Because I know what that is. <laughs> you know, 
Or are they really ready to face it? Are they desperate? Do they mm-hmm. want change? Not that they're looking for shelter, not that they're looking for food, but do they want to change their lives? What do they want to invest? Because there's nothing more important than one's life. Yep. And that's what I try to get through to them. I said, you're making an investment in yourself. Because mm-hmm. if you continue like this, you're going to be dead or locked up. Yeah. What was the the story with Dan? Dan um, was homeless. Um, Dan Weathers. And um, he came to me asking for help. And um, I told him he had to get into a shelter. And then I helped him get into Overcomers, where he graduated. Mm-hmm. Then the poor guy gets diagnosed with cancer, stays clean, fights it, beats cancer. And now he works full-time for Miracle Hill running the kitchen at the Greenville Rescue Mission. It's like one of my favorite, favorite um, interactions. Um, and it's one of the few that I know the outcome. Yeah. It's you a know, good that's one. why I want to know more about what, what actually happens. Yeah. Because these folks aren't great at calling me eight, ten months <laughs> later and go, hey, hey, remember me? Sometimes, sometimes I'll run into them at the probation offices where they're checking in because they're always on probation when they graduate. Because probation wants to keep an eye on them, make yeah. sure they're they're doing the right thing. So sometimes when I'm taking clothes, if probation's transporting somebody on my behalf to rehab, I'll run into one of my guys. So hey, remember me? And I never <laughs> recognize them because last time I saw them, they were escorted out of jail and get and handed over to me to transport to rehab. You know, so they always look different, but they always Probably have like, that glow. Like, yeah, they much better. Man, things are going so good. Yeah. Know? What has this type of work done for you in your recovery? Uh, it reminds me I don't ever want to go back. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to go back to the way I was. I don't want to go back um, to that hopeless feeling. Because there was a time in my life I was 100% hopeless. Mm-hmm. And that's the worst feeling you could have. You know, it's just that there is no hope for you. God doesn't care about you. Nobody cares about you. And you're you're useless. Mm-hmm. That's the feeling that I never want to have again. Nor do I want to sit in a jail cell again. Yeah. What do you th- what's the feeling you get being able to give individuals that type of hope? It feels great. It's awesome. This isn't a common thing mm-hmm. in, in anywhere. Um what David has achieved in setting up and the willingness of Greenville County and the justice system in the 13th circuit court, the judges to allow us to put folks into rehab, to trust us that we're going to take care of these folks. That's pretty amazing. So that's not common. That's not to my knowledge. Yeah. Not to my knowledge anywhere. It took me a couple of years to get into Pickens County. You know, I've helped one guy in Spartanburg. I know we've helped a lady in Lawrence County. But as far as, you know, other counties, when people like Anderson, I get letters from guys in Anderson County. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't have any setup there. I'm not, we're not, we don't work in there. And I'll send them a Bible, but yeah, you know, I, I can't really help them. And I mean, we, David and I can only do so much. I had this grand idea of, well, let's, let's start, see if we can get in the Anderson detention center and start helping those men and women. And I'm like, how can we do this? Dang. You know, it's, it's hard enough keeping up with Granville County and Pickens County. Mm-hmm. Man, and you think about that in a grand mm-hmm. scheme of things. 
I didn't know that was it was so rare. But we talk we you hear all the time like the numbers of individuals that are um, incarcerated that have mental health or addiction issues, and to think they don't even have a way out to go into treatment is well kind of mind blowing. When we got into Pickens County. There was a guy that worked for, I think, Folk Rehab in Pickens County, and he was helping get folks into into rehabs. He mm-hmm. retired. So you have a person that gets sentenced to rehab. Probation thinks the jail's taking care of it, and the jail thinks probation's taking care of it. And so this person just sits and sits for months with no solution. Well, that's what we, that's what we do. We provide the solution. Yeah. So we create the pathway get the court to agree to it and then we make it happen and we get them to the front door. And like I tell my guys, here you are. It's this, the rest of this is you, all yeah. you, you know, I can't do anything. I can't do the work for you. How can, um, the community help you guys? Well, I mean, obviously monetary donations to help with all the Bibles. Yeah. Um, we have we maintain a clothing closet for the re- rehab department. Okay, so we have men's and ladies um, clothing rooms because we send them. They have nothing when they're when we get them out of jail. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever they were wearing when they got arrested, right? Most of the time, their clothes are gone. They're wherever they're living is gone, right? Yeah. So we pack them with a full wardrobe, full hygiene. You know, we got to have a sense of worth. You know, they want to feel good about themselves. Yeah. You don't want to pick them up in shorts when it's in January. Because mm-hmm. they were arrested in July, you know they need pants, they need a coat, so we give all that to them. In addition to, yeah, getting them to where they they need to be. So you have like if people had extra clothes, they can come drop them off to yeah, you. Yeah, gently used. Yeah, um, preferably. Um, so that helps a little bit, but the, but more it's it's we need more support. We need more prayer. Um, we need the community to better understand addiction because mm-hmm. as bad as it is, it's just not understood. And all we focus is on overdoses and deaths, <clears throat> Yep. you know, and there's a whole, whole lot of nine to fivers that are struggling with this big time. And, you know, as the, the, the recent years, you know, it's, it's been made cool to talk about mental health, mm-hmm. right? Because, um, stars come out and admit their struggles with mental health. And so now it's okay to talk about mental health for years. It was taboo, Mm -hmm. right? Well, the same thing needs to happen with addiction. People need to be able to go to their boss and say, listen, I got a problem. Yeah. And not get run out the door. You have an opportunity for a solution, Mm -hmm. you know, um, before they get to that desperation point where then they lose their job and they might lose their house and they might lose their family, their life. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we need to be more comfortable talking about it. We don't need, we need to, while overdoses and deaths associated with overdoses are important. As I told you earlier, I lost my best friend to an overdose. Um, We need to just talk about addiction in general. There's Mm -hmm. a lot more stuff that people are addicted to than opiates. What do you think is misunderstood to the general population about addicts? is that we're doing it by choice. We're using by choice. It becomes a physical addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes a mental addiction where we have to have it. We, where we feel like we, we can't survive. And in some cases, if you're doing 
benzos or alcohol, you'll die if if you just quit using. Yep. You know, and it just gets to a point where we make stupid, like I said earlier, stupid decisions. And it doesn't make us bad. You know, it makes us wrong. But with opportunity for help that's out there, we deserve us or they deserve all of us addicts deserve a second opportunity, a second chance to right the wrongs. Cause we heard a lot of people going through this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we alienate a lot of people. Yeah. We destroy relationships, burn bridges. Um, but there is opportunity for redemption. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think if you were speaking with a group like you are now, how do you end like one of your talks with maybe a message of hope or just understanding. That is dark as things can get. As dark as things got for me. Mm-hmm. I did lose hope. But there's help out there. But you have to be. You have to want help to get help. You know. You got to want it. It's not easy. You know. Um changing your life, changing everything that you, you, how you operate is what you have to do. You have to change your, your people and your places. Um, it's hard to do. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Um, it's uncomfortable and it's uncomfortable admitting to other people, your problems, but that's part of the recovery is sharing and talking about it. Um, first thing is, is find a meeting. Yeah. I was about to say, what's the first step in a meeting, AA meeting, you know, they're all over town, wherever you live, there's a meeting, right? Mm-hmm. You're not judged, you know, at all. You can get a bad cup of coffee and <laughs> you can talk about it and you'll soon learn that no matter how bad your story seems, there's always somebody with one that's worse. Yeah. You know, we all have a story to tell and, um, we just have to take time to listen to those stories. You know, and I don't think we do enough of that either. Yeah. Stories are powerful, man. And just like your story, I want to thank you for coming on today, joining me. Conversation has been great. What you're doing, the work you're doing is incredible. Like we need thousands of you out there doing what you're doing um, because you're really making a difference. And I know that must feel, I mean, incredibly good for you. Um, But thank you for coming on. It's been an honor to have you on. And if you have any last words, go for it. But I just want to thank you. No, but... A better life is always possible. You don't have to settle. You know, you don't have to settle for the way, th- how bad things are. That doesn't define you. That doesn't define your life. Yeah. It's just a, it's just the, that particular place you are, but you can change it. Mm-hmm. But you got to want it. You got to be hungry, you know. Um, and that's, that's the hardest part, man. Yeah. It's change. It really is. And that, like you said, it is possible. Which some people, when they're, you know, in their lowest point, they just think it's not. But it is possible to change. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.